0: Oh good morning it's always an honor to be back here I, I was going to check into this and I didn't but I outside of my own church I think I've spoken here more than the other church it might be my seventh or eighth time which is just uh, it's an honor it's it's always an honor to be somewhere once but if they let you come back that's <laughs> might be a mistake on your part but um and Travis mentioned that um you know it's not about me or my background or anything, and uh, Amy, Amy raise her hand, I'm here with Amy again, she's usually here with me, so fun to travel together, but when I've been here before, I've gone over my background, and you don't really need to hear that again, some of you might be new, so I thought I'd better go over my real background, <laughs> uh, and this is really my real background, I relate to First Corinthians one twenty-seven, where it says, but God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise, it's just... It's kind of how I see myself. I know myself too well to be proud about anything. I'm just glad that God allows me to breathe. And then one other verse, John four forty four. Jesus said, a prophet has no honor in his hometown. That's why I travel all the time. <laughs> because I get no respect. <laughs> if you don't know who that is, ask your parents. If you're really young and you don't know who that is, ask your grandparents. <laughs> so, But that's... Uh, I'll give you just a little bit of background, not all of it, but I founded the Starting Point Project about 17, 18 years ago. It's all about our starting point that we believe that God exists and the Bible is God's word. Um, So I've been traveling full-time for the past 17 years all across the country and around the world. And I was also invited to be on the board of directors of a group called Logos Research Associates. This is the world's largest group of scientists who are Christians and creationists. The founding member, Dr. John Sanford, he's from Cornell University. He's famous for having invented the gene gun, inserts genes into the DNA, brilliant guy. He was an atheist actually for much of his life. Very strong Christian, very godly man, very humble too, just great guy. Then there's Dr. John Baumgartner. he's a PhD geophysicist. He's built the world's best 3D computer simulation of plate tectonics just off the charts brilliant. Even secular geologists use that model to see how plates of the earth are moving. So there's those two guys, myself and a few other board members. And if you were here before, I always joke by saying if these guys were here this morning, they'd be the first to admit out of all eight board members, I'm the tallest. So <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, just a little over a year ago, Dr. Sanford, who started this group from Cornell, he asked if I would step up and become president of the whole group so now (laughs) i have lost all respect for the rest of the guys on the board if they want me to lead them but i've I've learned a lot from them because they're doing cutting edge research and then i get to translate it into english for everyone else um i also do grand canyon tours which i'll talk about that in fact pastor bob has went on a few others went is anyone here who went on the the trip with us last year probably not there was just a, a few i think but um We also, about a year ago, started, actually a year ago this month, started doing a podcast every Friday. Someone approached me and asked me to do podcasts, and I said, I have I have absolutely no time to do podcasts, so know I'm doing podcasts. <laughs> we have about 52 of them out, one each week. Every Friday comes out. It's brand new. It's free resource. We've already reached the top 5% on the planet of podcasts, which is just, it's a God thing. It's not me. I'm just sitting at home talking into a mic, and it's in 50 countries or more. It's just kind of neat. So I'll talk about the resources at the end, most of which are, are free. Um, if you don't get anything out of this sermon, other than this next point this morning, this is very important. The reason that Amy and I are here this morning is because we are not here. Now, where is here? <laughs> um, it's called Fiji. <laughs> we were supposed to be in Fiji right now, speaking in public schools. I have did it twice in the past. Amy went with me once. Uh, I was a whole other story I don't have time to get into, but we were in the public school system speaking in regular public schools catholic public school or catholic schools hindu schools indian schools muslim schools and and talking all about god their creator and jesus christ and the gospel message in public schools and i would tell those students is said, what you're about to hear from me the students in my country would never be allowed to hear. And they were just curious, like, what, what are you going to share with us that, you know, American students can't hear? And then I would tell them, they're like, why? Because they don't like the implications of it. <laughs> Nothing wrong with the science. It's just they don't like where it heads that there is a God and Jesus Christ is the Son of God and all that. So... We were supposed to be there, but we weren't uh, laying around on the beaches there. We were uh, also had to worry about the dinosaur showing up. I just thought a dinosaur fits in there very well. That's, that's actually a picture I took of my phone while I was down there. But um, we were in the deep interior, and this is some of the living quarters, um, some of the places we were. Um, and it was kind of rough. We were at one school speaking, and it was raining out. So on the way back, we had to cross these little bridges on the way out there. And on the way back, this is one of the bridges. <laughs> um, it's not a bridge. <laughs> it used to be a bridge, just totally washed out by just a little bit of rainfall for a few hours while we were speaking at the school. We had to turn around, go the wrong way, all the other side of the island, drive all night long, no sleep, and go to the next school and speak. So I guess I don't feel too bad we're not there again. <laughs> but anyway, that's where we were supposed to be this weekend. But I already had this on the calendar, so I told them that uh, they'd have to wait till next time. So the talk this morning is uh, Creation, a Case from Science. What you're going to find out is that um, I could cover a, a lot about one thing, or I could do a little bit about a lot of things, and that's what I opted for. I'm going to just scratch the surface on a lot of different topics, and it'll be really, really helpful because a lot of these topics are confusing for many Christians, Um, and so you're going to be drinking from a fire hose. I don't expect you to remember all these things. I just want you to walk away knowing you can trust the Bible in, in a lot of what it says. No, in everything it says, absolutely everything that it says, because this talk is really not about creation and evolution. I, I will be discussing that topic all the way through, but that's not the point. The point is the authority of Scripture, that you can trust absolutely everything it says, Uh, I don't have time for another talk, which is that the idea of evolution does not fit with the Bible. A lot of Christians say, well, God used evolution because he's all-powerful. God is all-powerful. We don't need to spend any time talking about what God couldn't do physically. He's all-powerful. He can do anything. It's not about what he could do. It's about what he said he did. And that's why the world is messed up today, because we don't go by what he says. Genesis chapter three, Satan said to Eve, half God said, did God really say? He had Eve to think, well, no, maybe he didn't really mean that. Maybe he meant something else. I have a better idea. We are here today all messed up because Adam and Eve thought they had a better idea. Now we would never do that. We would never think we know better than God, right? (laughs) Except for every day of our lives, probably. So we're really centered on the authority of God's word. We need to trust it so what I'm going to do is I'm going to go through a bunch of things that when you think about that topic, you just naturally connect it to, to the idea of evolution. We'll talk about the Big Bang. When you hear the Big Bang, you just think right away, well, you know, you got the Big Bang, and that leads to maybe like this whole evolution thing, the history of the universe and all that. You also certainly think about evolution when you think about ape men. I mean, man, they got the fossils and the bones. You can't, You can't deny it. I mean, that's... That's reality. You have to deal with it some way. Maybe, again, God used that process. We'll take a look at the fossil record. All the fossils that are in the layers of the earth, we associate that with evolution too, generally speaking, because that's what we're taught. Carbon-14, you think of that, I mean, you don't think of the Bible, you think, well, it kind of proves evolution and all that, so we'll touch on that. Dinosaurs, huge. Almost no one, when the topic of dinosaurs comes up, thinks about the Bible right away. You, You think of something else some millions and millions of years of history, which you don't even know how to fit in the Bible, and you're like, I, ah, who cares? And you just kind of move on, you bury your head in the sand, you don't really want to think about it because it's confusing. And then the, the idea of natural selection, we hear about that all the time with evolution, so we'll talk about that. And then mutations. You know, you've heard the, the term, we'll talk about mutations. And again, all these things are associated with the idea of evolution. So we're going to go through each one of these things, and it's only going to take four or five hours. <laughs> No, I'm going to go fast. It will be within the time of a sermon. I'm going to go very, very fast, just touch on these things. So let's start out by talking about the Big Bang. The Big Bang explains the origin of the universe, doesn't it? I mean, that's that's what it is, right? There's one really interesting thing about the Big Bang, and that is it doesn't explain the origin of the universe. Oh, sure it does. I mean, that's what it is. It's an explosion that creates the universe. No, the Big Bang doesn't even kick in until after you have all the stuff you need, the matter and energy. The Big Bang didn't create matter and energy. It's a description. The Big Bang is not even a force. It's a description of what they think happened to the stuff that somehow got there. And the Big Bang is a description of how expanded and formed our universe. So it's not a force. It's a description of something that happened after we got everything we need. So it doesn't explain the origin of the universe. And when you think of the origin of the universe, we only have three options. Just three options. Number one, it was created by something. or Sorry, nothing. It's created by nothing. Second option, it was created by something. Third option, it wasn't created at all. What does that mean? It's always existed. So it, it didn't come into being. It wasn't created. It's just always, always been here. Those are the only three options. And that's not a religious statement. That's logic. There are no other options. I could stand here for... 12 years, and you won't be able to come up with another option. Those are the only options. So let's take a look at these options. Number one, that it was created by nothing. Well, I mean, we can, we can rule that out right away, right? Because, I mean, nothing can't do anything. Nothing is nothing but nothing. That's why we call it nothing. Nothing could not have created the universe. That, that makes no sense. We could rule that out right away. All right, second option, it was created by something. Okay, it's kind of vague in general. What was that something? Well, we have two sub-options as to what the something could have been. And here are the two sub-options. One would be that the universe was created by the universe itself, the natural world. Well, something can't create itself. It's crazy. It would have to exist to be able to do something. And if it already exists, it's not creating itself. So you get that. Something cannot create itself. So we should be able to rule that out, right? It was not created by the natural world. Well, then it had to be created by something outside of the natural world. Well, something outside of the natural world would be the supernatural world, meaning above and beyond, apart from. Well, the alarms are going off here. You can't have the supernatural. I mean, separation of church and state and all that, and that's a whole misnomer. We don't have time to go through all that. But they're throwing this one out instantly, not because they've disproven it. They don't like it. They don't want it to have been created by something outside of the natural world, which would be the supernatural world. They won't allow that in our school systems. Well, I want to know what experiments have you done to show the supernatural world does not exist. The non-physical world does not exist. They've done no experiments. You can't. Science only deals with physical stuff. You can't do a scientific experiment to show that God doesn't exist or that non-physical things don't exist. It's impossible. It's not even logical. So it's not that they've done experiments to determine, oh, I guess there is no supernatural world. They just don't want it to be the supernatural world. Well, they've even conveniently changed the definition of science. Now, science, when it got its start, which actually was birthed out of the Christian community, very simply put, was basically discovering explanations for the natural world around us. So, nature, the natural world. It was a given that God must have created it, it come from nowhere, it couldn't have created itself. God obviously created it. We want to study that natural world to learn a little bit more about our creator and to see how it operates. That's what science was. They have subtly changed the definition. Watch how this subtly changes. Now it's discovering natural explanations for the world around us. They are only looking for natural explanations, not supernatural. They will never, ever, ever find evidence for the existence of God because they're not looking for it. They only want natural explanations. They will rule all of the other ones out. Here's an interesting quote from uh, an atheistic physicist He said this two stories are possible. The first is creationist. God made man with some purpose that involved man's ability to appreciate and worship God. Let's forget that story. The whole point of science is to avoid such stories. Is that the point of science? Not at all. They've made it the point of science to roll out anything supernatural. And then Dr. Scott Todd from Kansas State University said, even if all the data point to an intelligent designer, such an hypothesis is excluded from science because it's not naturalistic. What's he saying? He's saying if even if all the evidence just screams a god, a creator, a designer, we're going to rule it out because that's not a natural explanation and we're only looking for natural explanations. So it doesn't matter what the evidence points towards. They're just going to pick what they want and claim there's no evidence for God or creation, and you can't teach it in the school system. That's a religious view. No, not at all. They've changed the definition of science, and they're extremely biased against God or the supernatural. But it's like this. I came up with this analogy. Let's say I wanted each one of you to write a 100-page research paper on the origin of that laptop. But here's the catch. Nowhere in your paper can you ever, ever refer to human beings, people, Men, women, engineers, software engineers, programmers, nope. (laughs) You'd come up with some pretty strange stories of how the laptop got here if you can't talk about people designing it and creating it manufacturing it. That's what our textbooks, science textbooks, are filled with. They're filled with stories trying to explain the origin of the universe, the origin of life, and everything else apart from purpose, apart from design, apart from anything creative, it's just stuff happened. The Big Bang created the universe. And particles banged together. and Now here we are together. And the particles that came from the Big Bang that are in your head are banging together. And most of you think that the Packers are the best team. Why do the, <laughs> why do the particles in your head care about football? It's just, it makes no sense. But that's their silly story. And that's what we teach in our school system. It's the only story allowed. So we're going to rule out that the universe was created by something, not because there's evidence against that, they just, they just don't like it. So we've ruled out that it created itself because that doesn't make any sense and it couldn't have been created by something other than itself because they don't like that one. That leads us to the third option. It has always existed, okay? Very interesting concept, let's take a look at that. What this would mean is that if it has always existed, there's no beginning. If there's no beginning, that means no begin-er. If there's no begin-er, there is no creator. And if there's no creator, God is unnecessary. And this view also comes with free chocolate chip cookies, which is appealing to me. <laughs> but that's the idea. They like this one. If the universe has always existed, we don't need a God to begin, you begin the universe. It's just always been here. Um, It makes no sense, I have a longer version of this talk and I have to skip all the slides to show you how, no, it could not have always been here. It cannot be eternal. One of the reasons is if the universe has been here forever, it would have run out of gas a long time ago. There'd be no heat or organization left in our universe, but they call it the cosmos, which means order. Secular scientists know the universe had a beginning. It cannot be eternal. So they try to come up with a Big Bang to explain the beginning of the universe without a beginner. It doesn't work. The Big Bang doesn't work for many, many, many reasons. But this one we can rule out. They know. The secular scientists know the universe had a beginning. So we can rule that out. Well, wait a minute. We just ruled all three out. There are only three options, and we ruled them all out. we got to pick one of them. Guess which one wins? Yeah, The universe was created by nothing. That's what the vast majority of secular scientists go with. I am dead serious about that. How do you get something out of nothing? In fact, how do you get everything out of nothing? Very interesting. Here's a quote from Discover Magazine, Science Magazine. So the universe bursts into something from absolutely nothing, zero, nada. And as it got bigger, it became filled with even more stuff that came from absolutely nowhere. <laughs> It sounds funny, but this is a science magazine written by PhD scientists. It's got to be true because those people are smart. Yes, those people are smart. They're not wise. (laughs) Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. They don't have wisdom. They got smarts. They got facts in their head, but they're not interpreting it properly because that takes wisdom. Here's another quote. This one I heard a few years ago and I didn't write down who it came from. I wish I would have. I believe it was a PhD physicist. This is what he said. Even where there's nothing, there's always something going on, you know? (laughs) Even though there's nothing there, there's something going on. He also said this you have to remember there's a difference between nothing and absolute nothing. (laughs) I mean, really, if you have absolute nothing, (laughs) you're not going to get a universe from that. But if you just had nothing, you could get a universe from that. That's not science. It's craziness, but that's what has passed along as science today. Here's an interesting quote from Lawrence Krauss. He's one of the leading theoretical physicists. Seriously, brilliant, brilliant scientist. He's also an atheist. And this is what he had to say. Ask yourself if this is science. Even if you accept this argument that nothing is not nothing, you have to acknowledge that nothing is being used in a philosophical sense. But I don't really care about what nothing means to philosophers. I care about the nothing of reality. And if the nothing of reality is full of stuff, I'll go with that. So how do you get a universe out of nothing? He just redefines nothing to be something. Men are women. Women are men. You know, nothing is something. Something. It's just, just just change the definition if it's not convenient for you. That's crazy. So the way he gets a universe is, yeah, nothing created it, but nothing is actually full of stuff. You'd probably have another question. Where did the stuff come in that Nothing. Where did it come from? They can't answer any of that. This is hand-waving, but you're supposed to believe them because they're just brilliant, and they can speak at such a high level you have no idea what they're saying. And if you did understand it, you realize it doesn't even make any sense. It's just craziness. Then we have Dr. Stephen Hawking. He was the leading theoretical physicist. Brilliant, brilliant scientist, also atheist. He was asked, how do you get something out of nothing? This is what he said. He said, because there is a law such as gravity, the universe can and will create itself from nothing. Okay? You probably don't want to debate the world's leading theoretical physicist. But again, let's forget about how smart he was and just think about what he said. I'm going to reword this slightly as we review this. Because there is something, the universe can and will create itself out of nothing. Wait a minute. If you have something, you don't have nothing. (laughs) What was the something he mentioned? The law of gravity. What is the law of gravity? It's not a force. It's not a thing. You can't weigh and paint and bend it. It's a description of how the universe operates. But you can't have a description of how the universe operates unless you have a universe to describe. But if you have a universe to describe, you're not creating it out of nothing. It's already there. So here's a statement from a very brilliant scientist that makes no sense whatsoever. Even other atheists call him out on that. And says, you know, you're contradicting yourself. It doesn't make any sense. I'm going to talk about some other evidence here for the design of the universe. It's called fine-tuning or the anthropic principle, which has to do with it looks like the universe is finely tuned and set up just right. For life to exist it's like a soundboard with all the dials and every dial is set exactly exactly where it needs to be you don't think that some five-year-old was there just messing with everything and they got lucky and put everything right where it needs to be it looks like it happened on purpose so that's what we'll look at next year um this is just kind of fascinating so we're going to look at two factors there are tons tons of factors that like all those knobs on the soundboard there are lots of them We're just going to look at two with the time that we have. Gravitational constant, force of gravity, and the cosmological constant. We're going to ask, what are the chances? There was this big bang, and all these factors turned out to be just right. We're just going to look at what are the chances that just this two, these two turned out right by accident. Start out looking at the gravitational constant. Now, here's a formula for the force of gravity. You guys probably knew that already. But the capital G there is the gravitational constant. And the number at the bottom, that's the value of this gravitational constant. The reason I have a picture of the sun up there is a reminder for me to tell a story. I was flying on an airplane one day, I was just bored out of my skull, I was looking for something to do, and I saw the sun rising. And I wondered, could I calculate the mass of the sun, just from what I remembered in my head from physics, you know, kind of weird, you might not want to make eye contact with me later, <laughs> but... I remembered that formula, gravity, and a bunch of other stuff, so I got out a piece of paper just to kill some time. I drew some diagrams on there and put some formulas on there, did some calculus, and then I came up with a number. I'm on the airplane, I have no idea, I have no idea if I'm even close. When I got home, I got out my physics book, I took a picture of it, this is actually it, I still have it, and Amy says, oh, there's a surprise. Um, I looked up the value, and I was a tenth of 1% off. I was like, <laughs> that's pretty cool. I was flying on a plane, just calculated the mass of the sun. What does that mean other than I'm kind of strange? <laughs> the stuff works. Science works. Math works. These formulas work. No one debates that. In fact, it was birthed out of the Christian community, so we're, we're not arguing about this at all. We, we love science, and it backs up the Bible. So here's that value of the gravitational constant, force of gravity, why is it that number and not something else? If there was a Big Bang. That number could have, could have been anything. In fact, scientists tell us if there was a ruler that was so long, it reached from one end of the universe to the other end. That's a long ruler. <laughs> Every inch on that ruler could represent a different possible value for the gravitational constant. It could have been anywhere. Well, let's say it's right there where we put the arrow. That's the you know, Big Bang, and that's where it landed. What if it wasn't there? We could slide this arrow halfway across the universe to see how that affects us. We're not going to do that. We're going to move it one inch. So there is a big bang It didn't land where it was. It just was like one inch over on this ruler that goes all the way across the universe. Would that make a difference to us? Yeah, animals anywhere near the size of people would be instantly crushed. Insects would have to have very thick legs to support themselves, and creatures are much bigger than that, they couldn't even survive. That's from messing with this gravitational constant, a tiny, 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 tiny tweak. So you want to say, oh, we got lucky, there was a big bang, and yeah, boy, we got lucky with that one. All right, that's the gravitational constant. How about the other one, the cosmological constant? This has to do with the energy density of empty space. Forget about that. It's just one of these very, 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 very finely tuned constants. If it wasn't exactly, exactly, exactly where it is, life would not be possible. What are the chances that happened by accident? Well, they've calculated that. There's one chance in 100 million, billion, billion, billion. That is a really, really big number. That's just for the one cosmological constant. All right, what are the chances both of these two things that we're doing as an example here, both of them turn out right by accident. No God, no creator, no designer. They both happen. Gravitational constant, cosmological constant, by accident. We've calculated that too. One chance in a hundred million, trillion, 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 trillion. (laughs) If you haven't studied math or science much yet, that's a big number. (laughs) That just screams. There's no Way that that's an accident. And that's two factors out of tons that we could review this morning. Here is a quote from Owen Gingrich. He's a Harvard astronomer. He said, A common sense and satisfying interpretation of our world suggests a designing hand of a super intelligence. He says, You look at science and the world around us, it screams that God has to exist. There's no way it just happened on its own. Psalm 33 6, by the word of the Lord, where the heavens made their their breath, the host of them, by the breath of his mouth. God is the one who created this universe. That's what he tells us in the Bible. And the more we look at science, the more it screams, yeah, I guess he got that right. We can trust that. Quickly moving on, we're not going to spend that much time on each of these categories. Ape men. Many of you probably been to museums. They have actual bones. Most of museums are replicas, which makes sense. You find one bone, you can't have that bone in every museum. So you make replicas, that's fine. But you've been there, you've seen the bones, you've seen the ape men. It's in the textbooks. All the scientists believe it, right? Your teacher's taught you that. It's got to be true. Let's take a look at some ape men. Started looking at some classical examples that have been around for quite a while. This is Nebraska man, Hesperopithecus heraldcuchii. That just means ape of the Western world. And the guy who discovered it, Harold Cook. So that's why they gave it this. Little, but they gave it this long, broad name. Like, wow, these guys are so smart. And they're just kind of making up the names. It doesn't mean what they found was true. But this is what they said Nebraska man looked like. Everything you'd wanted in eight men the face is very brutish, you know, longer hair, kind of stooped over. He's got a club in his hand, so he knew about Stone Age tool. He's uh, got a wife behind him, and she's making a fire there. A little bit harder to see, but then there's some domesticated animals. There's some horses up here, and then camels over in the corner here. They figured out a lot, a lot about Nebraska, man. That's very impressive. So what was it that they discovered to figure out all those details? <laughs> One bone. And the bone was a tooth, a single tooth. And they have gave you all those details in Nebraska Man. They wouldn't know how tall he was. Was he stooped over? Did he have clubs or fire, domesticated animals? He wouldn't know any of that. But then they found more of these teeth. It turned out the teeth came from a pig. So the single pig's tooth, they made a whole ape man out of it because they wanted it to be an ape man so bad. So they were able to, in willing... Comfortable with stretching the truth here. I was down at a museum in Texas a couple summers ago, and I know the curator. I had not been there yet, but I told him I'd pop in and see him. He said, hey, you know about Nebraska, man? I said, yeah, Hesperopithecus herald cookia. He goes, yeah, I guess you do know. He goes, you know, they found more of those teeth that let him know it was a pig. He said, yeah, he goes, you want to see? One of those teeth. And I said, "Yeah." So here's an actual tooth from the pig that allowed them to realize, "No, this isn't an ape man at all. It's from a pig." It's pretty cool. So again, a single tooth, they made the whole ape man out of it, and it was in the textbooks for years and years and years. It's proof the Bible is wrong. So let's move on. This is Piltdown Man, *Australopithecus dosoni. Very much brutish ape man. I, that's proof right there. The Bible's wrong. God didn't create Adam and Eve. We evolved from ape-like creatures starting six million years ago. What was the evidence? Well, it was some bones from a human skull and bones from an ape jaw. That the guy the, quote, discoverer said, no, it was on the same skeleton. So this creature looked kind of human, kind of ape, because it kind of looked like a human, kind of looked like an ape because of the bones. Well, yeah, because the skull bones were from a human and the jaw bone was from an ape. And the world's leading experts couldn't tell that this guy actually filed the ape teeth down to make them more flat like human teeth. And he discolored the bones to make them look older. And this was in the textbooks for over 40 years. Just think of all the students going through learning about Piltdown Man. Proof we evolved from an ape-like creature. The Bible is wrong and so many churches like, well, you know, maybe God used evolution because he got all this evidence. We don't want to deny science. We're smart people. Yeah, bring it on. We'll just say that's how our God did it. It's not what Scripture says. It doesn't fit in whatsoever. Now, a current example. Well, I think we just have time for one here. This is Australopithecus afarensis. <laughs> you know, southern ape from the far region of Africa. That's what it is. They also call this one Lucy. You've all heard of Lucy. Take a look at Lucy's eyes. Specifically, the whites of the eyes. Now, when they dug up the bones, they didn't find the eyeballs. They were long, long gone. Why would they put whites on Lucy's eyes? Chimps and gorillas don't have whites of their eyes. But you put whites of the eyes on Lucy because she looks more human than humans have whites of their eyes. So they put them on Lucy and they would even, they said they purposely posed her to make her look like she's deep in thought, contemplating things, you know, kind of becoming human. That's how they do it in the museums. Very, very interesting what they did with Lucy. A little bit of humor break, I love the far side. It said, rocking the anthropological world, a second Lucy is discovered in southern Uganda. <laughs> it's, just, <that's> just, <laughs> it's just my kind of humor. So, further look at Lucy. So here's some of the depictions here. Um, Lucy, discovered by Donald Johansson in 1974, what about the name? Why did they call her Lucy? This is Very interesting. Uh, Donald Johansson, where they were digging in their camp, they were listening to music by the Beatles, and they were listening to a song called Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. So that's why they called this first one Lucy. A little bit of free trivia, won't charge you for that one. But this is what they say. They said it you know, formed about 3.5 million years ago. They only found about 20% of the skeleton, and they claimed it walked upright, not like an ape or a chimp, but upright like a human being. So it looks like a chimpanzee, but it's standing more upright. That's the claim. Now, we only have time for part of this, but that's what Lucy looks like in the museum. So, like a chimpanzee, except standing up like a human. Take a look at Lucy's feet. Lucy's feet look a lot more human than like a chimpanzee. Why does Lucy have human feet on her? They didn't find the foot bones. So, why did they put human feet on her? Here's why. A thousand miles away in rock layers, they say, are much lower and much, much older. They found basically human footprints. Well, if humans left those footprints lower in the rock, a thousand miles away, Lucy's not on her way evolving into a human being. They already exist. That would destroy their story. So they say, Oh, Lucy must have left those footprints. She must have had human like feet, and she's walking around and leaving those footprints. <laughs> It makes no sense whatsoever. Now, since they found Lucy, the first one, they found other australopithecines, and they found the foot bones, and they're long and curved, just like a chimpanzee. But you go to most museums, they haven't changed it, because, well, it costs money to change that. They want to destroy their story completely. Uh, Lucy's just an extinct chimpanzee, that's all it is. And there are many, 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 many other examples we could go through one after another. I could point out why each one is not an ape man. It's either just an ape they wanted to make look more like a man, or a man they wanted to make more, more look more like an ape. Like here's the summary actually. Every single example you have ever, ever, ever seen or ever will see, any of the new ones, It was either really just an ape that they wanted you to think was more human-like. That would be like Lucy, just an extinct chimpanzee that they said walked upright and did all these other things. Or it was really fully human that they wanted to look more brutish and ape-like. That would be Neanderthal, man. We don't have time for that. But they agree today that Neanderthal, they were human. Because... Asians and Europeans today have 1% to 3% Neanderthal DNA in them, meaning they were intermarrying and having children. They had to be human. So they weren't ape-like creatures, but in the museums, very brutish-like that we've evolved from a Neanderthal man. No, they don't believe that anymore. Or it was a mix of bones, sometimes by accident, where they didn't realize these were from different skeletons, but other times purposely in a fraudulent way. So that explains every single ape man you've ever seen or any new ones that come up. Very quickly with the fossil record, you could talk about this for a long time. We have to be very, very brief. The fossil record. So you got all the layers in the earth, that's a fact. You got bones in them, that's a fact. They call that the fossil record and they say that proves evolution. You could see the history of evolution through the rock record. Here's a quote uh, and a concept from Stephen Jay Gould. He was one of the world's leading evolutionists. Bright guy, he was an atheist. This is what he, a leading evolutionist, said about the fossil record. He said there are two features you notice when you're looking at the layers and the bones. Number one, sudden appearance, and number two, stasis. What is sudden appearance? Sudden appearance is when they see these creatures in the rocks. They're appearing suddenly. Suddenly. Out of nowhere, fully formed. It's not that they're slowly developing from something lower in the rock record. It's like, first time you see them, it's like, wow, including things like the trilobite. The trilobite has the most complex eye known to mankind. And when they see it in the rock record, it's like, bull, boom, boom, fully formed, ready to go, not developing from anything. They, they don't see anything. Anything underneath it that's developing into the trilobite eye. Nothing. It's just boom, ready to go. And then stasis, meaning staying the same. As they see these creatures higher up in the rock record, which they say is hundreds of millions of years of Earth history and evolution, stasis, they're staying the same. The same. They're not changing into anything else. It goes they might get a little bigger or bumpier, but they're not changing into something different. In fact, every major phyla, phyla is like a major body type. Every major body type we see in the world today, you see towards the bottom of this fossil record in the Cambrian layer. So all those patterns are already there, fully formed. And then in about 500 million years above that, no new body plans show up. That's not slow, gradual evolution over time. That's God creating things fully formed and getting buried in a flood. I have a four-part series on the flood, and just one point I make is if the flood actually happened, it changes everything. So you don't have this Darwinian tree of life that's life evolving over millions and millions of years, and the fossil record shows how life slowly developed over millions and millions of years. No, you have a worldwide, global, catastrophic flood coming through and burying creatures where they were living <laughs> catastrophically bringing seawater and sea creatures and burying them with dinosaurs. We have sea creatures buried with dinosaurs. How do you have that? We have sea creatures buried on top of Mount Everest, five and a half miles high. How do you get sea creatures on top of Mount Everest? Unless it was lower covered with seawater and then the mountains were pushed up at the end of the flood. That's part of that talk. The fossil record does not support slow, gradual evolution or evolution at all. So we have the four-part series, which is actually streamable. We don't carry DVDs anymore. All the videos we have now are free and streamable. We'll talk about that at the end. Um, I mentioned Grand Canyon. Um, I'll probably let this video play. It's not really long, but it'll show you our Grand Canyon tours. We do Grand Canyon tours to tell people about the fossil record and tell people about the Genesis flood, Genesis 6 through 8. It is not a silly flood story with Noah and these little animals and the giraffe's head sticking out of the ark. Not at all. That That's a silly story, but that's not what the Bible describes. When you actually read what it says about the flood, it's a historical event, and then we'll take you to the Grand Canyon and show you how you can trust every single word when it's talking about that global flood, and only the flood explains what you actually see. So I don't think you're going to be able to hear the audio on this. I'll make some random comments as you're seeing it, but we go to the Grand Canyon, not to just look at a hole in the ground, but to talk about the authority of God's word. And I do a lot of training along the way talking about how do we know God exists? How do we know the Bible is the inspired word of God? How do you know the Genesis creation account is true? What about the flood? How do you mentor your children and grandchildren? How do you reach out to skeptics very, very graciously? So here's a promo. So it's very family friendly. You're not repelling. You're not even hiking down into the canyon. We take a bus. Charter bus, air conditioning, I show videos, we walk up to the rim, and you have free time. I give some lectures here and there on the rim, showing you the big hole in the ground, explaining why there's a hole in the ground. We're rafting the river like that. It's not whitewater rafting. It's perfectly smooth sailing. But I explain how come all these layers on the earth, how come it got carved out, how come it's flat on the horizon all over, only the flood explains that. And so all the you know, food is provided. We stay in nice hotels. Uh, again, you're rafting the river, which is really easy. We take a bus down to the river. So you're not hiking to get down there. Uh, you're not ever really hiking up downhill. We see dinosaur footprints. Um, we go to a place called Antelope Canyon. In fact, very shortly, you'll see uh, quick video snippets of all the places that we go. It's nonstop fun from a Thursday night. To a Sunday afternoon. Uh, It's very, very affordable. We do Grand Canyon from the top. We can see top of Horseshoe Bend, which we raft around. We go to Antelope Canyon. We're on the river rafting, very simple. We see dinosaur footprints. The kids love that. They're all over on this Indian reservation. And the whole way we talk about the authority of God's word and we help train you so that you can defend your faith, not to come back home and go out win arguments with people, but to come back more confident than ever, you can trust everything in the Bible, which then in turn, you go out and share the gospel message, knowing if those people bring up tough questions about that silly flood story, the creation account, you know there are answers. You've probably forgotten all the details I told you, which is fine. But you know you can go get the answers. And you can get back to them. So that's what the trips are all about. We have six this year, June, August, three in September, and one in October. All the information, we have a brochure on our table back there. You can grab one of those. You can go to our website and see all the details as well. Uh, You're going to want to sign up soon. After we get off the river, we do this. We stand under this rock, get a group photo of the whole group. It's really cool. And whoever knocks a rock over has to put it back up. But but if you're interested, now is the time to get serious. (laughs) Grab the brochure. These trips can fill up really fast. We do have six... Uh, available. I can explain details some other time, but uh, you can get it from our website, thestartingpointproject.com, or grab the brochure. And there's a little video playing back there as well. But if it sounds intriguing at all and you want to go this year, get a hold of us as soon as you can to secure your spot. And it's really, really inexpensive. <laughs> Moving along, another topic that's instantly associated with evolution, carbon-14. I mean, everyone knows. Carbon-14 disproves the Bible and approves evolution, all that. They don't maybe know anything about it other than, than that. They've been told that. Well, i got to keep this brief. I don't have a, time for an entire lecture. But I call this the carbon-14 dating trump card, and I'm not being political with that. You, you know what a trump card is, that you just pull that out and it wins every argument. So what happens is a skeptic and a Christian are talking, and... The skeptic says to the Christian, Do you really believe all that creation stuff in Genesis? And the Christian probably says, Well, yeah, I guess so. And like, well, what about carbon fourteen dating? The Christian might say, Well, what about it? Well, it, it proves the earth is billions of years old and the creation account is wrong, the Bible's wrong. And the Christian might say, well, I, I guess I don't really know much about carbon-14 dating. I just believe the Bible. Yeah, you have your nice little mythology there, that outdated religious book. But I live in the real world, and we deal with science, and we cure diseases, and then technology and all that. And then they walk away, and you're comp- completely humiliated. Just like, you know, I, I don't know if I really want to share my faith again. I'm embarrassed. And you might even start doubting your faith. Am I, am I fooling myself? It's just believe in the Bible when all the science just keeps going against it? That's what we're told. So that's the trump card. Any skeptic can pull out carbon-14 dating and you just head for the hills. That's how it works. Well, I'm going to share a few things that are going to be really helpful for you without getting technical. I'm just going to make two major points about carbon-14 dating. Number one, carbon-14 can only be used to date things that were once living. You can't date rocks with it. So again, when the skeptic says, oh, you know, it proves the earth is billions of years old, it proves one thing. They have no idea what they're talking about. They are just repeating something someone else told them, and it works for them. You don't date rocks with carbon-14. You can date you know, bones and skin, things like that, but not rocks. Secondly, not a single scientist on the planet would ever, 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 ever use carbon-14 to date something that they expect to be old, you know, like 200,000 years old, a million, a billion, whatever. No, because carbon-14 decays too quickly. It'll only last for a few tens of thousands of years. It's gone after that. So if there's something that they think is hundreds of thousands or millions of billions of years old, they won't even try to carbon-14 date it because, well, the carbon-14's got to be long gone. So they won't even test it. So it has nothing to do with hundreds of thousands of millions of billions of years. It can only date things, you know, thousands of years. And very briefly, we find it where it ain't ought to be. If something is really old, it shouldn't have any carbon-14 in it. Well, guess what? Coal. Coal is supposed to be 100 to 200 million years old. Carbon-14 should be long gone. We have yet to find a single piece of coal on this planet that doesn't still have carbon-14 in it, which would mean it can only be thousands of years old, not millions. Diamonds are supposed to be 1 to 3 billion, with a B, 1 to 3 billion years old. can't be any carbon-14 there. Well, I got you know, contaminated. No, you can't contaminate them. It's the hardest substance known to mankind. We find these diamonds, they still have carbon fourteen in them. Now they got trapped in there when they were formed, but it had to be thousands of years ago. It can't be millions or billions of years. And there's many, many, many other examples I could go through, but I gotta keep moving here. Dinosaurs. This is one of the toughest ones for Christians, because not only do Christians not know what to think about dinosaurs. They don't know what they're supposed to think. You know, I'm a Christian, so what am I supposed to believe? I don't you know. I don't know. I, I don't know where you'd fit them. You can't, I mean, seriously, you cannot put a dinosaur in the New Testament. It doesn't make any sense. But even the Old Testament, and by, by Moses? No, I don't think dinosaurs are wrong with Moses. But, but further back, Abraham? Just, These just don't seem to fit. And I always tell, I have a separate talk, just on dinosaurs. You don't fit dinosaurs in the Bible. Why do I say that? Because it sounds like a problem. Like, I don't know, can we sneak him in here? Maybe no one will notice. No, you don't have to sneak him anywhere. You just read the Bible, and that gives you an accurate account of all of history. And then that will tell you when dinosaurs appeared and when they existed. God created everything in six days. Dinosaurs are part of everything. They must have been created in those six days. That's a whole other talk. I can't go into that element. Dinosaurs fit perfectly with the Bible. When you look at the scientific evidence, it fits even better. So very, very, very quickly, when you think about dinosaurs, you instantly think of millions of years. Why? Because that's what you were taught. You don't know any of the details other than what dinosaur bones got be 65 million years old, because you were taught that over and over and over and over. So if someone else comes along and say, yeah, you're right, and all the scientists are wrong. I'm just supposed to go with you because of your Bible thing. It's kind of intimidating, but that's where we are. That's why it's like, I don't even really want to talk about them because I, I can't make heads or tails of them, and it does seem to go against the Bible. But so let's just talk about this super quick. I'm gonna give you four reasons why there's no possible way those bones are millions of years old. They just can't be. Number one, most of the dinosaur bones we find are still fresh. It's like a cow bone or deer bone out in the field. If you find a deer bone out there, you don't think, oh, this is millions of years old. No, probably it was a few years old, 10 years old, whatever. It's not going to last forever. It'll just rot away on its own. The majority of dinosaur bones we find are still fresh. If they were 65 million years old, they would have fossilized a long time ago. Secondly, we find carbon-14 in dinosaur bones. It can only last a few tens of thousands of years. Best indicator is that the bones are maybe four and a half thousand years ago, buried in a flood four and a half thousand years ago. Carbon-14 shouldn't be there, it is there. And now we have soft tissue and red blood cells in dinosaur bones. You are about to see a very short video And it's something that very seriously, this is not sensational, very few people on the planet have seen. You're about to see soft dinosaur tissue being stretched in a laboratory, and here it is. That's dinosaur tissue. Does that look 65 million years old? It wouldn't last, it would have rotted away. You wouldn't even have it, let alone be elastic and snapping back. That looks fresh. Absolutely impossible. Now, I know you're sick and tired of hearing about soft tissue and dinosaur bones, right? No? Oh, maybe they just discovered this two days ago and it hasn't hit the news cycle yet, right? Try 1995. Many of you weren't even born yet. (laughs) That's a long time ago. Why aren't you hearing about this? Because they have no answer for how these materials Soft tissue, red blood cells, osteocytes, and all that could last for 65 million years. You read any article about it, look for the word iron. Well, well, you know, iron could extend the life of things a little bit, not millions of years. That's all they got, and they're not talking about it. If, if they ever come up with something, they'll be the ones leading the charge, to be on cover of every magazine, they'll be bragging about it. But since 1995, they can't brag about it because it doesn't fit in with their scenario of millions and millions of years. It fits in with a global flood. And now, more recently, we have... DNA in dinosaur bones. DNA is more fragile than red blood cells and soft tissue. It cannot last that long. It's still there. If it was buried 4,500 years ago, it could still be there. These are four powerful scientific reasons these dinosaur bones cannot possibly be millions of years old, but they fit in with a biblical time frame and a flood about 4,500 years ago. So I have a three-part series, was DVD, now it's free, streaming on our website. i will talk about that at the very end again. We've got two left. Natural selection is the next one. Natural selection again, oh, that's, you know, survival of the fittest and Darwin and all that, proof of evolution. So what is natural selection? Well, this is Darwin's book, Origin of Species, written in 1859. You can see on the side, it says Origin of Species. Books back then often had much longer titles. So here's the full title of the Origin of Species. It's on the Origin of Species by means of natural selection. That's what we're gonna talk about, but that wasn't the end of the title. It says this or the preservation of the favored races in the struggle for life. Darwinian evolution is the basis for racism today. There's a whole series of talks that could be done. Survival of the fittest. Those that are more fit could outcompete the other ones and just wipe out any other race or whatever you want. Some races are further along than others. I think racism is a thing, and it's deeply rooted with the idea of evolution. This is fascinating. I, that's a whole other talk, so I got to keep moving here. I just wanted you to see the full title of that book. So, natural selection, we call it survival of the fittest. And we could think of it this way let's say there are two dogs living in the same area, this uh, greyhound and a husky. Let's say over time the temperature changes somewhat, it gets colder out, global warming, you know. Uh, so it gets colder out. Which of these two dogs is going to survive the best in this newer, changed, colder climate? Obviously the huskies. You know, thicker fur, they'll be fine, but the greyhounds will probably die out. So the huskies survive and they have husky puppies. So they survive and pretty soon we pretty much just have huskies in that area, the others are gone. That's survival of the fittest. That really is, that's survival of the fittest. The huskies were the fittest. They survived. You could also, though, call it their survival of the luckiest. Let's say there's a volcano that goes off in this area where all these huskies are, and they get wiped out. And greyhounds somewhere else survive. Did the greyhounds survive because they were more fit than the huskies? No, they just weren't in the area where the volcano went off and killed all the huskies. So they, they were luckier. So you could, in a sense, call it the survival of the luckiest. It's not just those that are the most fit that survive. It's maybe fit, but also those that are luckier. So natural selection is a good explanation of survival of the fittest. Why do certain things survive? Natural selection explains that. What it does not explain is the arrival of the fittest. How do we get those dogs to begin with? Natural selection doesn't create anything. It's not even a force. It's just a description of what we're observing. Some things are dying going by the wayside. They're becoming extinct. They're going downhill. Natural selection kind of is a description of that occurring. We see it occurring. It's a description. It's not a force. It doesn't create anything new. And scientists today know that. If you're going to turn a single-celled organism into every other life form, you can't use natural selection to do that. It's not, not going to create anything new. So that doesn't cut it whatsoever. And most people think it was Charles Darwin that came up with this idea and proves evolution. No, creationists were talking about it about 24 years before Darwin even mentioned it. And it fits in with Scripture that God created everything perfect. He created a variety of animals to fit different niches around the world through mutations and through things going downhill. Certain things aren't suited anymore for their environment because things are going downhill and they'll tend to die out. So it fits it's perfectly with Scripture, but it goes against evolution, because evolution, you got to make everything better and better over time and create new things. Here's an interesting quote from an evolutionist. Natural selection must not be equated with evolution. Natural selection does not explain the origin of new variants, new genetic information. That leads us to this point. Natural selection talks about nature selecting. Nature's not selecting anything. Nature doesn't say, hmm, I thought, oh, I'm going to keep this. Yeah, should we do that? Okay, yeah. There's nothing volitional there. It's not like trying to do anything at all. So natural selection is kind of even a, a misnomer. And think of this. When the temperature drops outside and it gets colder, does that create a thermostat and a furnace in your house? No, it doesn't create those things. You have them in your house ahead of time designed, the thermostat specifically, to detect changes in the environment. And when the temperature drops, it says, I know what I'm supposed to do. I'm sending a signal to the furnace to fire up and heat, heat up the house. It was designed ahead of time to detect changes in the environment and respond appropriately. God designed his creatures to do that. These creatures can detect changes in their environment. And when certain changes happen, certain genes that they already have designed information, they get turned on. They get switched on because they need it now. They didn't need it before, but their bodies are designed, oh, we need it now. So it gets turned on. It didn't create out of nowhere because the environment changed. It was already designed that way. That's how you should think of it as a design feature. So the last subtopic here, Mutations. This is what evolutionists say drives evolution. And have, uh, so mutations, little coiled-up ladder, of the DNA, I have one of those rungs colored in. It's called a nucleotide. That's where all the information is on the DNA. It's in the order of those nucleotides or rungs on the ladder. Mutations are, generally speaking, I have to keep it simple, copying errors. When creatures reproduce, they take the DNA they have, the ladder, and they copy it and pass it on to their offspring. There's so much information there, sometimes they don't copy it properly and they make a copying error. That's what mutation is. And secular scientists tell you these copying errors are what make things better and better and better. Really? Well, let's take a look at that. Here's from UC Berkeley, very uh, liberal university. Mutations are essential to evolution. They are the raw material of genetic variation. Without mutations, evolution could not occur. They admit. It's the only game in town. You want to take a single-celled organism and evolve it into a human being, which includes creating a lot of new information, mutations are your only bet. Mutations have to create all that new information. So we're going to take a look at that very briefly. There's 50 million things I could share. I think I'm just going to be sharing one here. It's called the waiting time problem. How long would you have to wait for copying errors to make your, the DNA in a single cell better and better and better and better and better. And then, hey, here we are today. How long would you have to wait? There was a software system designed by Dr. John Sanford, the gene gun guy I mentioned, and Dr. John Baumgartner, the plate tectonics guy, and two other scientists. It's called Mendel's Accountant. And it mimics living things it mimics what mutations do it mimics it very well because we observe all of it we put it into the software system and now they can ask it questions like what would happen in 25 years from now how about a thousand years what about a million years what will mutations do powerful software system and they used it to ask a question about how long would it take mutations to drive evolution well We're not going to look at all of evolution from a single cell all the way to every other life form on this planet. We're going to look at just a a couple branches there. Human evolution. The evolution of modern man and chimpanzees from an ape-like creature six million years ago. So they believe chimps today and humans today evolved from a common ancestor starting six million years ago, branched off and produced the chimps and gorillas and all those other things. And then the ape man and then modern man. That's what they teach. And they tell us that took six million years. So six million years to produce chimps and humans with all the differences that we have today. So that is going to be our target. They have a six million year time period and they have to come up with actually conservatively 300 million differences. Let me explain that. So you have an ape-like creature, they say six million years ago, it's gonna reproduce and it starts to branch off and you got chimps and humans today. Well, there are, conservatively speaking, 300 million differences in our DNA between chimps today and humans. So evolution, over 6 million years, has to come up with 300 million differences today. But it's not just random differences. You could take some biology textbook and just make random changes to it. It wouldn't take you long. You get lots and lots of them. You wouldn't be improving the textbook. The changes you have to make, they're random. They have to be good random changes, positive coordinated so this random change can work together with this random change to start to build something. They have to be beneficial. They have to create new information. You need 300 million of those, even though you're just making accidental copying errors. So they use the software system to see, can mutations do that? That's our target. You've got six million years, you've got to come up with 300 million good positive related differences. They started off by asking it, okay, how long would it take to get two changes? We need 300 million but how long would it take for two? Just two rungs on the ladder, which is like nothing. It would take 84 million years. We're producing a lot of garbage along the way, mostly garbage, but you could, you could get two of those good ones. And they asked, okay, how about eight? We need 300 million, how about eight? Eight changes of the rungs, eight nucleotides is equivalent to like creating the English word, yes. <laughs> If you saw the word yes written somewhere, just the word yes, would you think I almost have all the information I need to make a nuclear reactor? No, you have the English word yes. That's what this is. How long would it take to get the English word yes from mutations? 18 and a half billion years. Let me summarize this. They want six million years. We'll give them 3,000 times that much time. Give them 18 and a half billion years, and they can still only come up with 0.0000027% of what they need. Not even close. This, this article is available online to read the whole thing, and it has been reviewed over 10,000 times. How many of those scientists tried to refute it? Zero. There's just, there's no way to refute it. They can see, yeah, it's not going to happen. So mutations are not going to create evolution. They have nothing to do with evolution. They're just the opposite. Every time we reproduce as human beings, we add about another 100 mutations, 100 copying errors to our DNA. So my parents had a whole bunch. They they copied their DNA, including all the mistakes that had accumulated, and then they added another extra 100 and gave it to me. And then my wife and I took all the mistakes that we had accumulated and got from our parents. We added another 100 and gave it to our son and daughter. It keeps accumulating. Things are not getting better and better. That caused one Russian scientist to ask, why have we not died a 100 times over? If we've been evolving for 6 million years and we keep adding these mistakes, we should have gone extinct a long time ago. Well, we haven't been evolving for 6 million years. There's a lot more to it than that, but this is just confounding them. It makes no sense. So, mutations doesn't drive evolution. It has nothing to do with supporting evolution. in fact, every one of those things does not support evolution whatsoever, but it fits in perfectly well with the biblical narrative of what God told us a long time ago, and science is starting to catch up. You know, Maybe God actually knew what he's talking about, <laughs> and we can trust the whole thing, including the gospel message. So ending with some scripture, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's what God told us a long time ago, and you can believe that. It's not a silly religious story. It's actually scientifically accurate as well. This is about the authority of God's Word. If you choose not to believe portions of this, what is your ultimate source of authority? Where are you turning first to get truth and then using that truth to then later read God's Word and decide what you're willing to believe and what you're not willing to believe? It's kind of scary. This should be your ultimate source of truth. And when you turn somewhere else, if it's contradicting this, you could say, I don't really understand much about this, but it must be wrong, because it goes against God's word. When you stand before God, more likely kneel before God, he's not going to ask you about radiometric dating or mutations or anything else. He's going to say, what did you do with my word? Yeah, well, this PhD physicist said whatever. and He's like, who? I, you know, I'm looking around. I don't even see him here. You know? But you chose to trust that person versus what I told you. And for most of history, we didn't even have science. So what did people do a 1,000 years ago, 2,000 years ago? Like, I could read this, but it probably doesn't mean what it says because eventually they'll have scientists to tell us what it really means. I'll end with this, too. Don't just send a missionary out then to wherever. Send a missionary with an astrophysicist and a geophysicist and all that. So after the missionary shares something about the Bible, the scientists can say, okay, I know you're probably thinking this. It doesn't really mean that. We're scientists. We're here to tell you what it actually means. You need us, not just the missionary. It doesn't make any sense. God means what he says and he says what he means. So, why is this important at all? We are just totally overwhelmed today with all these social issues. I mean, there's just so much, there's too too much. They're overwhelming the system with all of these issues. And it's not that any one of them is too hard, it's that there are too many of them all at once. And here's a very important point. If someone brings up any one of those issues, it should never be your philosophy versus theirs. Who are we that the whole world should care at all what we think? Someone brings up one of those issues, your response should be like, hey, interesting topic. Let me see what God's word says about that. And if they have a problem with what you're sharing, and the problem isn't really with you, it's with God's word, and you want to share it very, very graciously We always need to go to our starting point. That's why we've named our ministry The Starting Point Project. It's all about the starting point. And I'll end with one example. Abortion. I could pick any one of these. Let's say two people are talking about the topic of abortion. Let's say one is a strong Christian, the other one's very much a skeptic. So we're just going to say pro-life and pro-choice. They're going back and forth, and at some point the Christian says, well, you know, the Bible says, and then the, the pro-choice person says, oh, you got to leave your religion out of this. What they really mean is you got to leave the Bible out of this. That, that's what they're really saying. And way, way, way too many times the Christian says, okay, yeah, I suppose it's not fair for me to bring in my religious beliefs. I probably shouldn't do that. If you do that, if that's your response, this is what you are. <laughs> you're toast. (laughs) You're done. Why? You just gave up your only real foundation. This is what's going on. You believe the Bible is the inspired word of God. They believe the Bible is not the inspired word of God. They want you to give up your foundation, but they get to keep theirs. How is that fair in any sense? It's not what you should say is, hey, hey, hang on a second. Yeah, I do believe the Bible is the inspired word of God. You don't. Let's admit our biases and go from there. Because the pro-choice person would be probably the first to admit if the Bible is the inspired word of God, case closed, Abortion's wrong. But they'll say, but I don't believe the Bible is the inspired word of God. At which point I say, and that is the real issue. It's not abortion, it's not transgenderism, it's not gay marriage, it's not any of those things. It's people don't think the Bible's the inspired word of God. If you can show them evidence that this is the inspired word of God and introduce them to Jesus Christ, they'll connect the dots. They'll say, you know what? I think I'm changing my views on abortion. I think I'm changing my views on gender because God says Adam and Eve and all that. They'll connect the dots. But we run around trying to change their behavior, trying to get them to live like a Christian when it's hard enough for Christians to live like Christians. They need Jesus Christ and the authority of his word. So we need to be confident that the Bible is the inspired word of God. And we have tons and tons of resources that will train you to be more confident in defending um, God's Word. So right now at our table and online, we have 34 free streaming videos, all different topics, evidence for the inspiration of the Bible, creation, evolution, the Christian faith in general, pro-life and, and all that, all free. We're adding maybe six or eight more new ones this year as I get a chance to record them. So you can get at them through our website and off the table. I mentioned the podcast already. There are, I think, 52, at least 52 episodes that are out there for free. Very, very powerful resources. I have a monthly newsletter. You can sign up at our table or on our website. It just comes out in email once a month. And in it, you'll see a question of the month article that I write. That's in the newsletter. All the old ones are archived on the website. All those are free as well. I wrote a little pocket guide um, that uh, was up here. Some Oh, I did live stream broadcast. I have a pocket guide that's out on the table. um, Four categories of evidence of how we know the Bible is the inspired word of God. So it lists the categories and gives you one example of evidence in each of those four categories. Those little pocket gu- guides are available for free on the table as well. So lots and lots of free stuff. The only thing that we sell are the books that I've written because it costs a lot of money to print them, and produce them, and ship them across the country. But we've even greatly discounted those. You can get all three for $30. And I'm not here to raise support, but we don't charge anything. 39 years of speaking, I've never charged a penny ever. The way the ministry goes forward is through our monthly supporters. If God puts on your heart, you want to support this ministry, we'd we'd welcome that. We'll give you the books for free. (laughs) So it's just almost everything we have is free, then we're just thankful God. It's God's ministry. You can do whatever he wants with it. And I already mentioned the Grand Canyon Tour, grab a brochure if you're interested in knowing more about that. So with that, I appreciate you. Once again, if, if you know me, you know I talk fast. I always will. I have a... Two speeds off in 50 million miles an hour (laughs) and nothing in between ever. So, but I want you to walk out of here, not remembering any of those details, just realizing once again, wow, yes, everything in here is trustworthy. You can just read it pray about it. And then also pray for opportunities for you not to keep it to yourself, but have an opportunity to share the gospel message. Don't, Don't argue evolution with someone else. Talk about Jesus. If you can't get anywhere with Jesus, forget about the evolution stuff and the flood and all that. <laughs> um, talk to them about Jesus, and if they ask you tough questions, you can get back to them. Talk to Travis, talk to Pastor Bob, uh, contact myself, get answers, and then go back to them. Let the Holy Spirit do all the heavy lifting uh, in your efforts. So I will close in a word of prayer. I look forward to seeing you lobby afterwards. Dear Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much for this time that we've had to take a look at the ultimately the authority of your word. Thank you for giving it to us. I pray for each person here this morning, including myself, that we would be in your word each day looking for guidance and wisdom from you, and then give us each opportunities to find people in this lost and dying world who need desperately need the hope that is only in Christ. And I pray for anyone who is here this morning, God, who's on the fence checking it out. I'm just honored they're here. This is the best place to be. I pray that they'd come back next week. Um, but I pray for those people that today would be the day that they would place their trust in Christ, meaning, okay, maybe I don't know everything. I'm going to stop trusting my own wisdom. I'm going to place it in Christ, ask for forgiveness of my sins, so I can have eternity with my Creator, and then I have the rest of my life to figure out answers to some of these other interesting questions. So We just pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. amen.